This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for another history episode of the podcast is Eric Mills, the Naval History Editor-in-Chief. Hello, Eric. Ward, how are you doing? Been too long a time. It has been too long a time. Uh, we've actually been on a, uh, should we call it a tear? Yes. With Naval History episodes, a lot of great guests, and a lot of good content. I mean, you've been burning it up. The issues lately have just been gangbusters, end-to-end. Well, thank you, man. All killer, yeah. no filler. That's All our mantra. All killer, no filler. You wear the T-shirt. And today's episode is no exception, so why don't we get right to our guest? Well, it's August, and so we're celebrating the birth of the U.S. Coast Guard this month, and in our current issue, you'll find a story just about that. And what's fascinating, I think, is that the founding father of the Coast Guard is also one of the great founding fathers of the United States of America, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, celebrating song and story quite a bit um, of recent times. Uh, he's kind of one of the hot founding fathers, if you will. Now, he also was a very divisive one, as we'll get into with our guest. And joining us today is Commander Brian Boland, U.S. Coast Guard, who has written a wonderful piece in the current August issue of Naval History about how it came about that Alexander Hamilton founded the Revenue Cutter Service, the progenitor of the U.S. Coast Guard. Welcome, Commander Boland. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a uh, it's a privilege to be here with you. Well, tell us a little bit about the um, earliest uh, roots of why he was interested in doing this, creating this service. So, um, and, and I'll start with you know I, I went to the Coast Guard Academy, and so the the little bit of history that I was taught when I was eighteen years old was that Alexander Hamilton created the Revenue Cutter Service, and that that was more or less the the line that that we were. Told and, and it wasn't until much later when I was working on a master's degree that we started or I started looking into um, what kind of background or the context of, of the period and the things that Alexander Hamilton was um, dealing with. And my perspective at age 18 was that, OK, Alexander Hamilton created the Revenue Cutter Service. Got it. Uh, and that, that was the end of the story. And as I dug into it, I started to kind of realize that it, it was certainly not his, you know, apex achievement. He was essentially trying to create a unified federal government. And what was interesting to me was how the Revenue Cutter Service served the purpose for the collection of revenue, but, but also was a, a, a physical manifestation of, of kind of his, his federal dream for what the country could be. Yes, it's a very interesting point that this is a physical presence. These ships under federal, flying under the federal flag of authority, uh, weaving in and out of uh, the various states, tributaries, and coastlines is a symbol of that authority, but also enforcing the law. And so maybe tell us a little bit about the um, really divisive issues rending the nation that back in the days of that first Congress, in the early days of the Republic, 
you have the Federalists spearheaded by Hamilton on one side and the Anti-Federalists spearheaded by Jefferson, both on Washington's cabinet. Each one has one of his ears and he's kind of torn between the two. Um, so very much Hamilton was trying to find a way to do this, but not rile up the Anti-Federalist sentiment in the country. Yeah, and, and I think what that speaks to is the, the, the genius behind what Hamilton was trying to do. You know, we'd obviously just gone through the revolution. There was uh, a lot of suspicion about uh, overreach on the part of uh, our military or any other military for that matter, and, and especially the Navy. And one of the interesting things that, that came about when I was studying this was a book called Defying Empire. And smuggling was part, of, if you want to call the, the, um, you know, the original American culture, smuggling was part of it. And it, was, it was almost a celebrated thing. And so Hamilton had to kind of navigate this back and forth course between uh, trying to bring the country together. And to do that, he had to find some way to, you know, enforce these revenue laws that, you know, only a few years earlier we had been, um, you know, actively trying to subvert this, the same kind of um, collection efforts on, on, you know, what, what were now the American citizens. Um, so he had to be real careful with it. And, and it, you know, it was the Revenue Cutter Service. Fourth uh, of August, 1790, when when it was first mentioned, and, and it was not brought about as, as a big thing. He didn't make a big deal about uh, you know I am you know christening this you know revenue cutter service. It was simply uh, you know we're going to have a few cutters, small coastal cutters that will uh, sort of help the the customs collectors who were landlocked. It would give them a little bit. Uh, they could reach out a little bit further into the bays and tributaries and rivers and, and, and open waters to, to try to better enforce the collection laws. And he kind of left it at that. And, and I think that it would be hard to argue that that was not a deliberate thing on his part uh, to keep the revenue cutter service as small as he did. To kind of ease it in subtly and less noticed. That's probably a, a very um, astute idea on his part. You mentioned how he um, a lot of these arguments are playing out in the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers. And the way Hamilton put it in Federalist uh, Paper Number 12, he said, A few armed vessels judiciously stationed at the entrances of our ports might at a small expense be made useful sentinels of our laws. The key there, I think, is he says a few. And he starts off with ten cutters. Um, like you say, not this grandiose force just descending on all the states, which would have just played right into the phobias of the Anti-Federalists at the time. They just overthrew a king. They don't want a new king in the form of a central government. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss kind of deal. So you can understand their uh, reticence. So to, But you have to have some kind of national glue, I think Hamilton thought. And this is a way to sort of do that without making a big, huge production out of it. You're exactly right. And and I think what it was, we you know, if, if we can think about how polarized politics can become um, at the time, Hamilton knew that he, he couldn't do that. If, if he wanted to be polarized, he would have said, you know, these are going to be large cutters. Uh, they're they're going to be, uh, you know, heavily, um, they'll have heavy weapons. Uh, and, and he was going to make a big deal about the thing. And he didn't have enough of a foundation. Uh, it, it wasn't strong enough for him to do that. And, and again, it falls back on the, the um, you know, the, the genius behind what he was trying to do in that he, he had to, um, introduce something that that leaned a little bit more towards the federalist side, but also uh, keep it 
small enough so that it wasn't going to uh, offend the anti-federalists to a point where we would essentially go all stop and he wouldn't make any progress on it at all. So how did this idea not fall under the Navy? Why, how did this not automatically become a subset of Navy missions? And, and that's, that's an interesting question. And, and, and again, I'd fall back to when you look at what, what was written down on the 4th of August, uh, there was no mention of a revenue cutter service. It, it was going to be uh, solely serving a, a customs collection role. And it, and it, it took from, from the summer of 1790, the summer of 1791, they were still trying to kind of put the plan in place. Um, and it, it wasn't until a year later, in the, uh, I think it was in June of 1791, that, that Hamilton had already started showing his cards a little bit because he was sending an, an instruction letter to the, the first uh, commanding officer of the revenue cutters. And, and in that, he, he did it very subtly, but he started to expand, um, maybe not their powers, but, but the scope of the work that he expected from them. And he talked about uh, doing experiments and, and you know, re- recording the things they've seen and, and going beyond just collecting revenue and, and essentially being a federal presence on, on, you know, on, our, on our waterways. Another thing he did that you mentioned in here that was a stroke of genius and very uh, showed a lot of forethought, I think, is in terms of staffing the personnel, those very officers you mentioned, um, following the British model, it would have been that uh, they would have gotten a share of the prize money for everything they captured. Uh, and he realized that that leads to rapaciousness and let's just stop everybody and blame them smuggling and get a cut of their uh, goods. He gave them a straight salary, no cut of the take. And I think that helped add to the integrity and the optics, if you will. And also, I think it's set up as a more um, well-meaning service from the very get-go. I, w- I would absolutely agree with that. And, and the, the thing that he lost with that is it's you know, human nature when you offer somebody, a, you, know, you say, a prize for the more you capture, the more you get. Um, you know, it's human nature that provides some incentive and that worked for the British and, and you can't argue against, you know, their, their, um, the, the effectiveness of that, but yeah, Hamilton, again, he, he knew that that was not going to uh, sit well with the American people. And, you know, we, we look at it in terms of, okay, he's creating the revenue cutter service, but at the same time, he's, he's molding that service in, you know, within the, the vision of what he has for a responsible, uh, federal government. Yeah, Roger, and what you said earlier about smuggling is a part of early American culture. Uh, I've always loved the, the uh, little factoid that John Hancock, one of the richest men in the colonies, had made his fortune on smuggling. He was a very respectable <laughs> individual, right? Uh, it was just looked at with a nod and a wink. And um, In fact, it was uh, one of the things that got the colonists riled up against the British was they started trying to reinforce the old smuggling laws to uh, pay mm-hmm. their war debt off after we beat the French. And, uh, you know... American colonists are like, we haven't paid attention to that in 100 years, and you're going to start yeah. doing this to us now? So you can see how he's really got a stacked deck of public sentiment against him in a lot of this. And um, Washington, I feel so sorry for, because he didn't want there to be any two parties in the United States. He thought it would be divisive. And, you know, look at us today. He's kind of right, sure. you know. Yeah. But you see the roots of it right there in that first cabinet. you got Jefferson and Hamilton, or the DNA of uh, – the dichotomy that runs all the way through down to today. And um, he saw that rancorousness coming, and he was the only president that wasn't of a party. And uh, he was the last one, too, the first one and the last one. Um, And I I would love to have been in the room with Hamilton and Jefferson at some point because these guys, they both 
were, you know, champions of the cause of liberty. They hadn't worked together much. And they get on that cabinet and they are completely like, it's almost <laughs> a, a Shakespearean drama, the king and the two sons, you know, that yeah. completely at loggerheads. But Hamilton, interestingly, is one of the founders that never uh, went further, you know, than Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, he would have been considered presidential material as much as any of them, one would have thought. But it just didn't pan out for him. And so back to the summer of 1791, and he sends out his uh, letter to the, the first 10 commanding officers. And so I've always loved this. One of the things that he talked about, from them, he expected uh, prudence, moderation, and good temper. And I think that that stands, and nothing against the British, but that stands in pretty stark contrast to the expectations of a, of a sea captain uh, you know, leading up to the Revolutionary War. And he, Hamilton understood that um, there was, a, there was a, an expectation from, from your average American citizen and, and uh, you know, merchant captains and, and um, ships that were sailing up and down the coast that they were going to be treated differently after the, uh, after the revolution. And, and so Hamilton knew that and, and put that into writing and said, you know, these are your marching orders going forward. You, you have to, you know, treat, treat your fellow citizens with, with the same amount of respect that you would, you would want somebody to treat you with. And I think that that's really a timeless piece of advice that has, you know, now I've, I've been in the Coast Guard for a while now. And that idea has really, I, I think that has come to define how the, how the organization um, interacts with the general public because we're branch of the military, but we have, uh, you know, a, Every day we're interacting with with the public, whether it's marine safety or search and rescue or, or law enforcement or whatever the case may be. And the, so, you know, these things that this guy wrote 200 years ago still hold true uh, today. So there's a great painting on it's a it goes across page 26 and 27 that shows the early revenue service patrols stopping some pirates. Um, they, they've actually got a. Uh, smugglers smuggler yes yeah, stopping stopping some smugglers uh they've got a, a chest of doubloons or something and uh but these guys have got musket pistols and sabers and one guy's carrying the american flag and their torches are aloft and it it really does have sort of this daring do and this swashbuckling atmosphere to it so the again as a navy guy i'm, I'm thinking so if i'm a 20-something American patriot, why would I choose the Cutter Service instead of the Navy or even, by this time, the Marine Corps? Um, and I think the answer does inform the difference between the other sea services and the Coast Guard to this day. So give me, check me on this. But what I've noticed from my dealings with the Coast Guard since I've been on the team here at the Naval Institute over the last number of years is you guys have a real-world mission, like day in and day out. And the Navy and the Marine Corps, although we are expeditionary forces, may or may not be employed to do the mission to the degree that it's meaningful day in and day out. And, and so I think of hurricane relief. I think of the sea stories that folks told at one of the leadership panels at the Coast Guard Academy a couple of years ago, just eye-watering. And we're talking about mid-grade petty officers and, and O3s that have these sea stories that, that are really been there, done that kind of thing. So 
Do we think that was the appeal in the earliest days for folks who made the choice to try to be in the revenue service instead of one of the other branches of service? Is that is that a valid line of thinking? I would I would think that it is. And, um, you know, obviously anybody who was signing on to the revenue cutter service um, had to obviously be a believer in, in the federalist idea. I don't think we had too many anti-federalists that were, you know, signing up to go enforce collection laws. Uh, but but it, it brings up a good question. Did, did those folks know at the time, you know, what they were getting themselves in, involved in? Because in the in the first year of its existence, you know, Hamilton had already started to um, expand the scope of, of what he expected the revenue cutters to do. Uh, and then obviously, as, as the painting that you're talking about depicts, uh, those men quickly found out that they were going to do a lot more than, you know, sit at the mouth of a, of a river and uh, demand manifest from, from ships that were coming into port. Yeah, um, from the really pretty much almost from the get-go, your service uh, had uh, multiple missions that were constantly being added on. Um, not many years after what we're talking about, the quasi-war with France, the nascent U.S. Navy and its um, very finite number of frigates um, are lent support in that effort by uh, the revenue cutters who are uh, mustered up for that one, just like they have been in subsequent wars in a, a role augmenting the Navy's mission. And I think that shows right away that it was a very malleable, adaptable, fluid sort of concept. And it's needed to be that because you do occupy a unique space, it seems, between the civilian and military worlds. Yeah, and, and we, you know, over the, the decades, um, depending on what's what's going on in the world or in the country, um, the Coast Guard sort of swings from you know, in, in between both both ends of the spectrum. And, and depending on the field that you get into, uh, you can uh, orient yourself a little bit more towards the warfighting side. And then you've got folks in the Coast Guard that, uh, um, that you know, end up in, in much more of a domestic law enforcement role. And they're, they're all under the umbrella of the Coast Guard, but the, the diversity of missions that you get, um, you know, if, if somebody's doing their homework, I think that that's a real, uh, that, that will entice people into trying to join the Coast Guard o- over, you know, some of the other services. It, if they kind of see the, the, um, the, the spectrum of missions that we have. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hamilton himself, you said, was giving them instructions that were um, going beyond the normal just revenue enforcement um, smuggling patrol type thing. And so I feel like he had some sort of vision, at least in a general sense, that here's something with a lot of potential and we're just kind of getting it up and running. But there's a lot more that can be done with it as time goes on. Well, to that point, so would you say that that the Coast Guard over the decades, Brian, has – maintain Hamilton's intent or has there been mission creep or at its core is the modern Coast Guard still Hamilton's vision? Uh, you know, mission creep is a great, that's the perfect phrase because in my you know 20 years or so of doing this, um, we have taken, and nine 11 changed, changed a lot of things. That was a, you know, that was a paradigm shift for everybody. Um, but we have taken on additional missions and um, but I, I would say that the, the culture of the Coast Guard is is still the very similar to the culture that you had in the 
you know, the 1790s and in the, in the early 19th century. Um, it, it was only a matter of within a few years of the first revenue cutters uh, getting underway, they were already involved in what we now call search and rescue. I, I don't think at the time they thought of it as search and rescue, but um, there was a probably a natural sense of service for the men that were on those ships. And when they saw the opportunity to help someone who was in distress out at sea, they sort of naturally took on that mission. Um, and, and I would, I would tell, there's another, I would tell a story. Um, I was uh, probably 23 years old. Uh, I was a boarding officer in, uh, in the North Atlantic and we seized a fishing boat that had been fishing in an illegal, uh, a, a closed fishing area. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, essentially with the boarding team took that vessel and the crew and, and we steamed uh, back towards uh, Massachusetts where the ship was from. And, you know, the crew was obviously upset that's their livelihood. And we, the Coast Guard, me at 23 years old, I'm an ensign and I'm, I'm taking that away from them. But uh, the one of the, I think the first mate had come up to me and he asked um, very politely if it would be all right if they went into the hold and took some fish out uh, to cook their dinner because that, that was, and it hadn't occurred to me till he asked, but that, that was what they, that was how they ate while they were out um, at sea. And I, I was, almost a little bit shocked that he even asked me, but I you know, said, of course, yeah, take, take what you need to don't, don't go hungry tonight. And I think that that ties into that prudence, moderation, and good temper that Hamilton was talking about in 1791. So that, that, that culture, uh, has, has stayed more or less intact for, you know, now 200 something years. Yeah. I think Hamilton would have approved of that measure, uh, with this fisherman out of <laughs> Massachusetts. Absolutely. So the article is called To Raise Revenue and Unify the Country. It's in the August issue of Naval History Magazine. I should mention that uh, Brian is a 03 grad of the Coast Guard Academy, and he's also a novelist, fellow novelist. And his books are Caribbean's Keeper, Graves in the Sand, and Signal on the Hill. So congratulations for those. Brian, good stuff. Renaissance man, Naval Institute kind of guy, and you're a C-130 driver. Uh, are you flying out of Elizabeth City? Yes, yes, I am. Okay. There's uh, one of our uh, air stations down there, so uh, I've, I've been there for about two years. I've flown over it a bunch, never landed there, fortunately, because if I had to land there in an <laughs> F-14, it meant something went woefully wrong. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for your service, Brian, and thanks for entering the forum here at Naval History Magazine. We appreciate it quite a bit. Great to talk with you. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.